Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New New Books Network. I'm your host, Ruth Morgan, a historian at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Today, we're talking to Greg Mittman, the Vilas Research and William Coleman Professor of History, Medical History and Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Greg has written widely in environmental history, including Documenting the World, Film, Photography and the Scientific Record, Breathing Space, How Allergies Shape Our Lives and Landscape, as well as Real Nature, America's Romance with Wildlife on Film. And when he's not writing books, he's working on films, having recently co-produced and co-directed two award-winning films about Liberia with Sarita Seagal, In the Shadow of Ebola and The Land Beneath Our Feet. Today, though, we'll be talking to Greg about his latest book, Future Remains, a cabinet of curiosities for the Anthropocene, which he has co-edited with Marco Amiro and Rob Emmett. Welcome, Greg. Thanks for coming on board. Thanks so much for having me. So, Greg, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your collaboration with Marco and Rob? Yeah, well, it started uh, in the fall of 2014, where we had this idea for an Anthropocene Slam, uh, which was sponsored by the Center for Cultural History and Environment at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Uh, the Rachel Carson Center for Environment and Society in Munich and the Environmental Humanities Lab in Stockholm. And we issued an international call to artists, anthropologists, sociologists, a wide range of scholars, scientists, natural scientists, humanists, artists, writers, um, to pitch an object that they thought uh, characterized our relationship uh, to the Anthropocene, this, this new age of, of humans, uh, as it's called, uh, in some unique way. And we were um, uh, deluged with, with submissions. We got over 72 objects. Um, and out of that, we chose 25, uh, where people then came to Madison and pitch these objects uh, in a very performative, playful space. They had 10 minutes to pitch these objects um, amidst a crowd. Um, And it was just a really creative uh, atmosphere. In fact, um, so creative that one person who came with one object was so inspired by what he saw happening that that night tossed away his idea for an object, wrote a play, and the play was performed the next day uh, in front of an audience. So that generated the idea of this. And from that, um, a number of objects, uh, 15 of those objects, uh, then became part of a cabinet of curiosities display within the Deutsches Museum's exhibit, Welcome to the Anthropocene, which is, as my understanding, the first uh, major uh, international museum exhibit on the Anthropocene. Um, And then out of that, uh, we 
brought together the people that had pitched these objects and that had been selected for this cabinet of curiosities uh, to write a group of essays around each of the objects. Uh, We were fortunate to get a very acclaimed uh, commercial photographer, uh, Tim Flash from London, to come and shoot images of the objects. Uh, And then we commissioned uh, other environmental humanities scholars uh, to engage with uh, this wider collection to write more reflective essays that are also a part of the book. It's an incredible collection, Greg, and it's so international. Can you give us a little bit of a background to the idea of a cabinet of curiosities? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think, uh, you know, working in this really interdisciplinary space uh, in in the environmental humanities, uh, where people are coming with very different sets of languages, very different disciplinary approaches, was where does one find common ground? And uh, in my experience, that it's much easier to engage in an interdisciplinary conversation around a landscape or an object where people uh, can come together and talk about it from you know their different theoretical frameworks, from their different disciplinary apparatuses. Um, but it's very grounded, right, uh, in, in the materiality of, of this specific thing or this specific place. Um, and it really fosters that kind of interdisciplinary collaboration. At the same time, it's a gesture back really to the, you know, the Wunderkammern uh, of the um, 16th and 17th century, where we had this really hybrid collection of nature and human artifacts produced together and, and, you know, and mixed together um, in this uh, kind of cornucopia, if you will, of, you know, within a cabinet. And, And so it was this, it was also speaking to that kind of creative artistic dimension uh, and this hybrid of both nature and artifice, uh, which to us really also spoke of, of the Anthropocene and the kinds of interdisciplinary conversations that it has been generating across the arts, humanities, and um, natural sciences and social sciences. Mm. I'll pick you up on a couple of things. There. And I, one thing that jumped out um, out to me in the in the book, and also just in your um, talking about it, is the relationship between environmental humanities, environmental history, with public history and museums. I'm wondering um, why is that proving to be such a productive um, relationship? You know, I think there is such a craving now, uh, you know, within the academy and and within the humanities as well, uh, and really engaging with the public, um, uh, and, and particularly in these, you know, critical, uh, issues of our time, uh, such as climate change, ocean acidification, uh, you know, extinction, um, that are, you know, impacting everyone on the planet, uh, in differential ways, um, that to really um, engage with the public uh, is really, really important. And, and one of the things that we really challenged uh, the contributors to this volume was uh, to really try and write in a way um, that was more of a creative nonfiction style. So these are very short essays, 3,000 words uh, or 
also um, meant to be short, meant to be uh, engaging, um, and so that anybody can dip in uh, to this volume is our hope, and 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 particularly um, you know undergraduates. I mean, we see this as a as a real uh, teaching uh, tool, uh, and um, so it's really within that frame. I think that. Uh, you know, there was a real interest really from the start of this project to engage in different formats. Um, so, you know, we, we started with this slam, this very performative space where, you know, we had a, an, an audience of a uh, hundred people. Uh, Elizabeth Colbert came and gave the opening keynote. We had over uh, 600 people in the audience for that. So it really brought in members of the community. Uh, it then became part of this really um, uh, very popular uh, exhibition at, at the Deutsches Museum on in the Welcome to the Anthropocene exhibit, uh, you know, and now it's taken this book form. And I think also working across these different media formats uh, has been also really important and critical uh, to what it means to produce humanity scholarship now. So, Greg, what are some of the objects that appear in this book? There's such an amazing uh, photography section in there. What what were you looking at? Um, so, there's a whole range of objects. Um, you know, starting uh, with a, I mean, in terms of the the gallery images, uh, a um, a manual pesticide spray prompt uh, from the from the 19 fifties, uh, um, a, a jar of sand and a and a in a kimchi jar, or in a kimchi jar, sorry, um, uh, a um, c- concrete uh, as it was just poured and mixed, um, a object which we, as the author calls, Hoya Echoes, um, that uh, Tim Flash put together in in photographing this extinct bird, the Hoya, uh, with a transcription of the song that it makes and it, and it, it's based on, it's, it's a, it's a rather amazing object in that the only actual material trace in some ways that we have of this extinct bird is through taxidermy uh, specimens and also the recording of a Maori man who is imitating the sound of the Hoya um, uh, that is now, had been recorded um, after the Hoya bird had gone extinct. Um, so that's just a, a, a sampling of some. There's a, a, a monkey wrench, uh, a cryogenic freezer box, a mirror, um, marine satellite tags, a, a, a special uh, object uh, known as snarge, which is a technical term for um, animal matter that has been uh, left from a human collision uh, with uh, uh, wildlife, um, uh, and there's uh, a number of others as well. So somehow your contributors have managed to to represent both human and, and more than human or, or non-human um, representations. Um, how important was that to the project? Um, that was absolutely uh, critical to the project and, and really to try and um, capture the kind of uh, multivalence uh, and kind of multi-species uh, 
nature of the way in which, um, you know, the Anthropocene um, as this new era is is really um, impacting all forms of life uh, across the planet and really uh, to think more broadly um, and, and critically uh, about those differential impacts, not only, you know, among humans, uh, but among different species uh, throughout, throughout the world. And with your description of the um, extinct bird and the the uh, the song or the impersonation of its call by a um, a past man, uh, how do emotions work in this in this setting? It's such a uh, provocative set of objects. Yeah, and that's I mean one of the things that we were uh, really trying to do too in this project is to capture those really different range of emotions, those different emotional registers and, and valences um, that uh, are really embodied um, in this moment that we're living in and, and you know, perhaps epic uh, that we're living in, um, you know, from kind of uh, emotional responses of, of hubris uh, and, and of a kind of, you know, reflective in um, grand geoengineering projects that are, you know, think that we're going to be able to uh, engineer our ways, uh, engineer ourselves out of this uh, warming planet. Um, and that is, I think, reflected uh, in a, one of the essays, for example, by uh, Joe Masco um, on uh, a plow, the Plowshare film, um, which uh, is reflective of a uh, effort um during the cold war by the atomic engine uh atomic energy commission and and edward teller a, a nuclear physicist that thought that we could conduct these large-scale nuclear engineering projects by you know blowing off atomic bombs that were going to uh, build you know ca- canals uh and so forth um so there's that kind of you know one emotional res- response is this kind of you know ultimate hubris uh, to much more um, elegaic responses to ones of loss and despair. Um, and But also one of the common, I think, um, things that runs throughout it is a, is a deep curiosity, right? And, and, and interest a, of, of paying attention, of noticing these small objects and how they can reveal or, or open up uh, big questions about um, scales of time, uh, about our interrelationships among each other uh, and among living things um, as well. Scale was something that really jumped out at me with this book and, and, and it often does in any conversation about the Anthropocene. But I'm really interested in the, the local, if you like, of the object, but how it can embody the planetary. Is that something that um, these objects are doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, uh, is, is, is really one of the virtues, if you will, of, of having this more object-centered uh, historical approach um, and the ways in which um, it does able one through a very concrete, you know, specific thing, uh, allow one to weave in these much larger stories uh, across uh, time and uh, and across space. So, 
Um, I think, for example, of, um, you know, uh, Bethany Wiggins object, the calico quilt, which is, a, a it's a, it's a piece of, of, fabric of, of a quilt made uh, by a, a Quaker that's uh, a print of um, William Penn and his and the a treaty that was negotiated uh, with the settlement uh, in Pennsylvania with the Lenape Indians um, and it and 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 it, and it shows this it reveals this really um, ambivalence uh and you know irony of uh this quaker abolitionist um at the same time that she was quilting out of this cotton fabric that was very much implicated and imbricated in the slave trade um you know the very materiality of it um and so it you know ties in it's it's a very intimate story but connects us to these really much larger scale political economic uh of you know and and forces and and um very much tied to colonialism and conquest and and slavery um or uh an object like um the a jar of sand which um uh, by uh, Thomas Matza and, and Nicole Heller, who are on this beach in North Carolina with their children, and and one of their children's asked this, you know, question of why is the sand striated, and it takes them into this great this this journey about um, geological forces and tidal forces, and then takes them into this whole process of of beach nourishment and and. Pr- beach property and and um you know property ownership and the changing notion changing property ownership in that area um and what needs to be done to keep this a valuable property by um re-nourishing the beaches as erosion is taking the sand away um and so again it you know it's it's this very small object that raises really really big questions yeah, big questions like capitalism and colonialism, which make me think of whose Anthropocene or whose objects are these uh, representing and, and these questions of, of inequality and, and uh, contribution, if you like, or uh, responsibility. Um, I was wondering how you've grappled with, uh, I suppose, representation and these sorts of uh, issues in, in the collection. Yeah, you know, and that's one of the things we are, you know, quite explicit about in in the book is that this is very much a, a you know a collection and a and and a perspective largely from the global north, um, and you know one of the thoughts that we had early on in this project was that this cabinet really needed really needs to circulate and and grow and that different places need to to. Would, you know, would it be great if it, it if it traveled and and different places added their own objects, right? That were more reflective of their own positionalities and 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 of those places and of the histories in those particular places. Um, so, you know, what would it what would such a cabinet look like, right? Uh, if it was being uh, put together by um, people in different parts of the world, um, you know, say in a place like Liberia where I work, uh, uh, you know, that the, the 
that would look quite, quite different, right, than the uh, Western European objects that um, are mostly reflected in this cabinet. Oh, no, not all. Um, there's a there's a painting um, uh, by uh, Trisha Carroll and um, Mandy Martin um, that uses uh, uh, or a jury uh, art and, and X-ray painting uh, of you know, based on this Aboriginal tradition of, of art, uh, in Australia, um, and to really weave together, uh, dream time and contemporary time, uh, and in thinking about, uh, the current landscape in this place, uh, around Davies Creek, where both, uh, Trish and, and Mandy live. So I was really struck by the, um, the way that the the collection tries to um, evoke an ecological view of the world in contrast to the Anthropocene's emphasis on geological time and and geological strata, and I think that's a really interesting uh, uh, tension, if you like, in the debates that continue to go on about naming the Anthropocene. How are you seeing this play out? You know, as someone who has worked, you know, most of their career in thinking about ecology and the history of ecology as a, as a science and so forth. One of the striking things to me uh, really about um, the last uh, couple decades is, is the way in which um, the earth sciences have in some ways taken over um, the meaning of and, and notion of what constitutes the environment um, in a way that, you know, if we were, in the 1950s and 60s, um, it would be the biologists that were and ecologists that were really front and center of that conversation. Um, and now I, it's not as much the case. Obviously, in certain areas, it, it is particularly, you know, for example, when we're talking about um, uh, questions of extinction, um, but in terms of, you know, climate change, this is, this is uh, you know, really uh, a conversation that um, is in which um, atmospheric chemists, geo, geoscientists are very much, uh, you know, in the f- climate modelers are very much in the fore of that. And so if you look, I mean, even in terms of the history of the concept of the Anthropocene, right, the, the coin was, was the, the term was coined jointly by Eugene Stormer, who was a paleoecologist, uh, and Paul Crutzen, an atmospheric chemist. Um, and it's interesting to me, even really over the last, you know, five to 10 years or so, the way in which Stormer's name has even dropped out um, of, you know, the the conversation. Um, and in some ways, it's, it's symbolic to me of the way in which uh, ecology and 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 life has somehow some in some ways um, dropped out of the conversation when we're thinking about the the kind of genealogies uh, of the Anthropocene. When uh, we think about uh, the Anthropocene, it's a very uh, future uh, oriented concept, and I wondered how you uh, have thought about the future in terms of these objects providing like an archive or fossils of of a present. And I thought that was a really interesting play with um, temporality. Could you reflect a bit more on the future side of this project? 
Yeah, um, you know, I, I think the probably one of the objects I think that really speaks to that uh, quite tellingly is a, a fossil blackberry um, made by Jared Farmer. So it's a, a it's a techno fossil, right? There's this whole genre of art um, uh, known as techno fossils um, that is you know, this extinct human device, right? The BlackBerry or, or virtually extinct. Um, and the way in which it, you know, the, the, the kind of um, fossilization of that, if you will, um, the remains of that, um, that might, you know, would possibly survive into the future um, reflects a, per, you know, particular historical moment um, in humans humanity's time on earth um so that uh in many ways these uh you know we 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 talk about this you know these um remains these objects um are in some ways more uh symbolic of that of you know, uh, of a, the tarot cards of, of a fortune teller kind of looking into the future uh, than they are of a geologist looking into the past. I mean, I think um, uh, Liz Hennessy's object, the cryogenic freezer box, uh, is again a kind of projection into the future. Uh, you know, one of these boxes that are used in these uh, de-extinction experiments where where you're freezing life in, with the hopes that someday in the future, the technology will be there um, to bring these species that have gone extinct uh, back to back to life, you know, very much in a kind of Jurassic Park framework. So it's, it's, it's very much, you know, taking these objects in the here and now, but, but thinking about them in the context of a future, um, which we don't know, uh, what the world will, will be like yet. So what is the next step for the Cabinet of Curiosities? Uh, where, where does it go from here? Well, I mean, I think the, the, really the, the book itself is, is the, the final product, if you will. Um, you know, we, we started with the slam. That slam has been, um, duplicated in, in other parts of the world. I know that it's, they've had one in Switzerland. They've had one in Australia. Um, the, the, the notion of the cabinet, I think is, you know, that, that I think they're even in, in the museum spaces. Um, and, and Libby Robin writes about this, uh, in her essay, uh, in the volume, uh, is, that this, there's a kind of revival, if you will, of a kind of cabinet of curiosities uh, among uh, artists uh, in museum spaces, um, and so you know, I th- I think we're seeing more and more of that uh, kind of uh, m- exhibition work that's that's happening, um, uh, and then you know, with with the book in hand now. Um, it's it's our kind of end stage of the project, but we we hope that the idea is is, is taken up by others and 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 circulated um, throughout throughout the world. Mm, it's a fantastic model, and and I I hope it does continue to to contribute to a conversation around uh, the environment of humanities and and museums and and about the Anthropocene, of course. Now, Greg, I know you've been working a lot in film lately. What's next for you as we come to the end of our conversation? 
so I am uh, currently at work on a, a book on the impact and legacy of uh, Firestone Plantations Company in Liberia, which um, founded a rubber plantation in Liberia in 1926 that would become the uh, world's largest rubber plantation and, and looking at its uh, economic environmental and social impacts up to the present day. And and that's actually um, led us into uh, uh, another scene project, if you will. <laughs> um, and that's taking up seriously the notion of the plantation scene, um, which, you know, was a term that uh, was introduced by Donna Haraway and Anand Singh, I think, uh, in somewhat in response to the definitely in response to the Anthropocene, uh, much like we're getting all these other scenes, capitalocene, right? Chathulocene. Um, but we're taking on a project at, at Madison to really um, interrogate the, the notion of the plantation and scene and, and really looking at uh, 400 years of plantations, both in the past and present um, in terms of their, uh, widespread global impacts, uh, both economics, uh, environmental, uh, and social. It makes me wonder, Greg, what, what's in a name when it comes to Plantationocene, Anthropocene? Is that something uh, that has uh, been an issue putting such a collection together and in the work that you're doing as you go on? I think, you know, each of these um, terms, you know, whether we're talking about the capitalocene or the plantationocene or the anthropocene, um, captures, you know, a particular aspects of of kind of periodization of history, if you will. Um, that and none of them are complete, right? None of them quite capture the global forces and processes at play, right? So one of the one of the critiques, and, and when we when we said they when we started the Anthropocene slam, uh, we meant that literally in the sense that we were it was both in the spirit of a kind of poetry slam, but it was also meant in terms of slamming the Anthropocene. That is that we both wanted to think with and against the Anthropocene, and so so many of the essays in in the in the volume and 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 particular uh, Laura Polito's uh, essay on racism in the Anthropocene uh, really think critically about you know the we uh, as because one of the things that happens in the Anthropocene uh, is as we scale up to humans at the species level um, the differential uh, impacts and the differential ways in which people are contributing, for example, to global climate change gets lost and, and the issues around um, environmental justice get lost um, in that scaling up. Um, and so as you were asked earlier, like, who's the we in this, right? Um, and I think one of the virtues of something like the plantation scene is that it really gets deeply at these issues of colonialism and racial capitalism um, that are deeply embedded in the kinds of environmental crises and issues that we're facing today, and that we can't ignore them. Though you know that that longer history, um, and so I, you know, 
I think we need these different scenes together to think collectively about the widespread kind of global change um, that we're seeing um, in the context of not just global climate change, but a whole set of, 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 of forces and, and tied to, for example, capitalism and extraction um, and huge wealth inequalities um, that are really reconstituting the planet and, and living creatures uh, within it, in, including us as humans. Well, Greg, I've taken up a lot of your time already, but this is a, a fantastic collection um, and a very provocative one uh, that I uh, think is just going to keep uh, building and, and making us reflect on on how we think about the Anthropocene and, and the the objects we live with that are quite ordinary. I think that's just something that's a, a really uh, fascinating uh, exercise. So thank you uh, for joining me today and thank you to, for listening to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.